Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief in being. This is episode 10. Like, grief takes a long time. Grief doesn't go away. And, like, the fact that you're grieving something means that you care. Like, if you still haven't stopped grieving your your grandmother who passed away, like, that's okay. Um, or, like, the fact that, like, a lot of black and brown people, like, we're still grieving people who have been lost to state violence. Like, it's okay for us to keep grieving that because it matters to us. Rachel Virginia Hester is a Panamanian-born student activist, artist, healer, gardener, researcher, and writer living in North Carolina. Uh, As a Christian, Rachel is passionate about seeing the church in the United States flourish in full communion with all of creation, and she dreams of serving the world as a minister and an educator. Uh, She's worked with organizations fighting for LGBT and racial justice in the South, uh, such as Soul Force, uh, the Freedom Center for Social Justice, and she continues to find ways to practice and develop ethics that serve everyone. She's also nurtured, uh, supported, created online and offline communities for queer and trans Christians of color to connect and thrive. Uh, Rachel and I get into some really good conversation around the role of grief, uh, the role of lament in our lives, uh, how often those spaces haven't been fostered in our churches, especially within our white churches. Uh, And then we also talk a lot about reclaiming scripture from our own particularity and our own lenses. Rachel has been doing this through her project called Hashtag Black Girl Psalms, uh, and she gets into kind of her inspiration for that project and and what led to it uh, in the episode. Uh, Rachel is the first black woman I've had on this podcast, and I point that out because I think there's a very specific phenomenon that happens when black women speak, is that everyone else believes that they can pipe up and critique, uh, that they have the right to kind of challenge uh, these voices. And and I want to say up front, uh, be really in tune with yourself as you listen to this episode. If you're a white person listening to this episode and you're noticing yourself getting uncomfortable, I would really encourage you to jump back and listen to episode three uh, with Dr. D'Angelo. Listen through that. Work through your own feelings before coming for Rachel. Uh, I'm going to be monitoring Rachel's feeds, uh, paying attention to how people are responding to her, and I will be jumping in. Uh, and having some of these conversations because a lot of times these critiques aren't deserved. Uh, they shouldn't be directed at black women. Uh, and, and as white people, that's not your place. That's not your place. Uh, Rachel and I had a conversation about this and it's something that I think is really important. Like I will not be leaving Rachel hanging. Uh, she can respond to whatever she wants, uh, but I will also be responding and jumping in. Uh, and I would say it would be better for you to 
try and do your own internal work, use Google than to uh, challenge uh, some of the things that Rachel are saying. Uh, a quick piece of news, uh, if you're thinking about going to the Reformation Projects Conference on Biblically-Based LGBT Inclusion, uh, this Friday is the deadline to register for that with a discount. Uh, so if you're wanting to go to that, register by Friday. Um, I actually haven't registered yet, so I need to do that too. Uh, but register by Friday to, to get that discount. Uh, it's going to be an amazing conference. So if you're even thinking about going, it's in Chicago this year. Uh, and all you have to do is just go to reformationproject.org uh, to register. Let's go ahead and dive in. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's good to it's good to speak with you. So to start, this is a question that I ask everyone. Uh, but how do you identify, and then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? So I identify as someone who is queer. I specifically identify as pansexual, mm-hmm. but I don't always. I don't always tell people that I'm pansexual, so I usually just go by queer. Yeah. Um, I also identify as black mm-hmm. um, and Afro-Latinx. Mm-hmm. Um, I experience my queerness through my, my, the way I identify racially. Mm-hmm. I never really, I never really had, when, like growing up, I never really had this kind of theology that was focused on like who I was, mm-hmm. um, which can be a problem in many ways, and we can discuss that later, but mm-hmm. um, I guess I focused more on the justice aspect of my faith, um, even when I was younger. Mm. Um, I know that a lot of times people grew up more with like a kind of like Bible as a roadmap or Bible as like a list of things you shouldn't, you should do and shouldn't do kind right. of way. But because I, I wasn't explicitly raised in the church as like a child and a teenager, mm. I engaged more with my faith by like reading um, and with pen pals Mm. um and so i never really had the whole like struggle with like feeling like oh god doesn't love me um because i'm queer um even though i did kind of have a long period of time where i didn't know i was queer or was in denial about it Mm -hmm. but when i first started um realizing that there were queer people in the world um i was kind of on the like it's a non-issue like Mm which we can also talk about. But yeah, I never really I never really found a huge conflict between queer identity and my faith because growing up I just never or I didn't I didn't really experience concretely like the ways that like people experienced Christianity as this force that polices people's bodies right. until I started being engaged with the church. So yeah. I was reading I was reading about I was reading about God and learning about God for most of my life until I started college. That's when I started being around other Christians. Mm. And that's when I started experiencing things like purity culture, um, and the marriage and family culture that the church tends to be um, pretty obsessed with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting to, to have that experience of, of engaging with your faith in God from a perspective that I think like a lot of us who grew up in the church, that that doesn't come till working through a lot of baggage. And it mm-hmm. sounds like you had that experience of maybe freedom before the baggage kind of was imposed on you. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that probably made it a little bit, and correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe a little bit easier to like see how that baggage is harmful. Mm. Yeah, I'd be I'd be curious about what that process was like to kind of you said go into college and and start being around other Christians and and start having these things imposed on you. What was that like? It was 
It was really difficult. So I'm probably one of one of the younger people that I know who are who is really involved in like like examining faith. Mm. So like kind of like diving into like actually like reading about. Um, uh, well, sorry, that's a generalization. Mm. Um, it. I feel like I'm one of the more younger people when it comes to like progressive faith, just okay. because like there tends to be a lot of just in in my experience, like when I've been in college, I'm still in college. Mm. Um, I'm still an undergrad. Mm. Um, like I'll literally be in like a, a class with um, progressive theology. Mm-hmm. Um, but like all my classmates are reading like the BD from right. the Gospel Coalition. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that's kind of like what what my first time in college was like when I was in art school, mm. um, where I was um, kind of reading. I mean, I would consider like some of what I was reading like more like moderate. Mm-hmm. Um, but even still, like those kinds of theologies that were focused on like justice for like the poor, they kind of were received with a little bit of skepticism. Right. Or when they were re- received, it was kind of of this like this missile of like Rachel you're just so passionate like Mm. you're just so passionate or like I would I would like be one of the only people like crying Mm. when I was watching the passion of the Christ Mm -hmm. um and that like struck me as odd and I kind of felt like are like are my peers like because so many of my peers grew up in the church have been they've been desensitized whereas like I grew up not really being involved in the church just because my my family um they're they're kind of like nominal Christians, mm. um, so that's that's how I only started being involved with like Christian communities um, such as student groups until college, um, mm. just because um, before I, I had like pen pals and like Tumblr friends mm. um, who mm. were Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like my main way of like talking to people about like like Jesus and God and like what does it mean to like be a Jesus follower. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was being around, like, getting that pushback of, like, it wasn't antagonistic, the whole, well, sorry. Oh, you're fine. It, it was, it was antagonistic Mm -hmm. at times, um, but it just ranged from, like, the subtle to the more, um, like, people actually picking on me or, like, going out of their way to humiliate me, Mm. um, I remember one time when I was questioning like gender roles or gender expectations. Um, I was in a car in a van on the way to a retreat in Black Mountain. Mm-hmm. And some of the women that I was in the bus with, they were talking about biblical biblical like marriage and biblical relationships. Yeah. Um, they said something along the lines of like, I could never date a man who could like would lead like couldn't lead me or mm. something like that and i don't know in my back of my mind i was like kind of like like <laughs> like like i was just looking at my friend who is like a more shyer guy yeah i don't know if he knew i was looking at him but i was just kind of like you know like this person's really shy and like and and this is still like in the world of like heteronormativity right but i'm like this person is really shy and like this person but this person seems like a really like kind person mm-hmm. um like would they not want to date someone like him just because he's shy or like mm-hmm. would he not be fit for like a partnership just because he's shy or like he he's more reserved mm-hmm. so like i was just already questioning gender expectations and gender roles mm-hmm. um just because i wasn't i wasn't really raised in that environment where where people were telling me that like this is what like this is what a man should be like and this is what like a woman should be like um 
and just all these like gender normative like in like cis normative like expectations of like what a person should be like um right and and what a person who is worthy of like a relationship like a partnership relationship should be like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um that kind of resulted in someone just like giving me a hard time because i I just wanted to give other people a chance that weren't like necessarily like like I'm a man and I lead people and like I'm like I'm strong and I don't know because it it, I felt like even during that time of my life I just kind of felt like it didn't allow for the complexity of like someone being human and someone having to need support sometimes totally but on top of that I was one of the few people in that group who was not a white person Mm -hmm. um I was probably one of four people of color Mm -hmm. and so it it wasn't until after I I left and after I had to leave several other faith communities that I started to explore how purity culture was essentially racist Mm -hmm. like on its own like it's Mm -hmm. racist because um there's just these expectations of like how a woman should be like a woman should be like innocent and like Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the people that I went to school with always had profile pictures where like they looked really like pure and like had flowers um, and like beautiful dresses um, because like art school and like money and like fancy cameras oh yeah so it's like like that on top of just the whole like innocent kind of stuff I felt like was racist because there's a lot of ways in which black women aren't allowed to be innocent Mm. Um, we're not really seen as innocent and I like wrestled with that tension even when I was still at the college ministry but also when I was in um, pretty like moderate conservative like space spaces Mm -hmm. just like kind of wrestling with this image of like quote-unquote biblical womanhood Mm. and just feeling like oh like I feel angry about injustice all the time Um, so like even my anger for injustice felt like I couldn't live up to the ideals of what a biblical woman was um, according to purity culture because the ideal woman like isn't angry all the time Um, and like this was before I even knew why I was angry all the time like I didn't realize that I was angry because of like microaggressions that I felt I I felt like I was alone and I didn't know why I was lonely Mm. but it wasn't until like like Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and like the Charleston 9 shootings until all of that happened. Oh, in my in my time during mission year, we also read some books about race. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like that, like two to three year process of just like realizing that like, oh, like there is something bigger at play happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am perceived as different. And this is, this is impacting my ability to have relationships with other Christians. Right. Um, I didn't realize where a lot of the hostility was coming from and I realized that it's because we interpret our theology in such a way that like basically just upholds like all the isms right. <laughs> like basically like the patriarchy mm-hmm. like white supremacy um heteronormativity mm-hmm. and how basically my body and my existence and like my questions um just because I had a lot of questions <laughs> yeah um like why like why do we, why are we going to like another country to do like mission trips like when like there's homeless people in Savannah right like you know yeah. I just think yeah. that like yeah. it's like what are we doing about that um so I just I just had a lot of questions that often left people dismissing me as passionate or like giving me like really 
Shallow replies like, oh, like, I subscribe to the NAACP um, P newsletter, so I'm good. Um, yeah, right. Just kind of things like that. Yeah, I would imagine to, to walk into that space, it sounds like you went through your own, like, awakening process in that space and started to realize, like, oh, like this is why I'm feeling angry. This is like that mm-hmm. whole process go- coming for yourself and then starting to be able to name some of the, the things that were going on and realizing like, wait a second, like this theology that I'm being peddled benefits a specific person, a specific body. I'm thinking about like, you're, you're, you're doing this, this black girl Psalms project, um, mm-hmm. which I think is so powerful that, that taking back, theology that like that taking back and and reading scripture through our own lenses and like the liberation that that provides it shows us a completely different picture of who god is um Mm -hmm. and i'm wondering if you can maybe talk about that a little bit more like what is it what is it like now to have entered these spaces and then to start doing your own theological work or continue doing your own theological work of Mm -hmm. of reclaiming scripture and reclaiming the gospel in a way that is actually good news for you it's been it's been really difficult um i think like now that i'm more used to like accepting that like i am reading the bible in a way that gives me life and that i've been doing it for a while like it's it feels it feels like it comes naturally Mm -hmm. but like when i was younger and still like like immersed in these spaces um even spaces that considered themselves progressive um that just really just centered whiteness Mm -hmm. um and white ways of reading the bible Mm -hmm. um i had this habit of negating myself i kind of like would gravitate towards parts of the bible where it would talk about things that i should do Mm. um basically like reading jesus's commands to like love one's neighbor Mm. but like my eyes would completely gloss over parts that would say like love your neighbor as yourself Mm. um like and i would i wouldn't think about what it means to love myself Mm. um so it's it's interesting how basically like my mind and my body was trained to like read the bible in a certain way so even as i was reading it like my eyes and my heart and my mind would just like completely gloss over certain parts and i would only i would only focus on the commands of jesus or the things that i had to do um and like that worked for me because I was already like reading a lot of these like white theologians and like white moderate activists Mm -hmm. who were talking a lot about like like Christians ought to pursue justice Mm. like those are things that I still believe but I, I never I never considered that justice was something that I also needed. Mm. Um, that's kind of where Black Girl Psalms is kind of, that's kind of how it exists. Mm. Just thinking about the ways that I've experienced injustice in the spaces that I've tried to exist, churches, the academy, and just experiencing a lot of loneliness. Mm. Um, so Black Girl, Black Girl Psalms is an opportunity for me to lament and for other people to lament with me. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like that's something that the church, especially the white church, does very well. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of like triumphalism in the music, um, like God is great or like, but there wasn't any like, like God is with you um, or like God is like there for you in your struggles. And I realized that, that that's one thing 
that I really appreciate about the the traditional black church tradition mm. is that a lot of the music um, and the liturgy does focus on how God is with us mm. and like God is advocating for us. Mm. Um, and especially people like me who embody several kinds of oppressions mm -hmm. in the U S context at mm -hmm. least. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, black girl Psalms is kind of my opportunity to delve like, like to dive into those emotions, mm. um, and embrace those emotions. Um, and to, and to remember that like, like it's canon, right? <laughs> like my emotions are canon. Um, cause yeah. especially like being treated like a nuisance all the mm. time. Mm. Um, just all these years um, that I was in white churches. I mean, it's a whole long story why I was even involved in white churches for the most part, but that's another story. <laughs> um, like why I gravitated towards there. Yeah. Um, I was basically treated like a nuisance. Um, and so like for, for me to like realize that like, oh, like these feelings are canon, like feeling like God has abandoned you, like mm -hmm. it's canon. Mm -hmm. Or like feeling like people are always trying to tell you to like basically pay back what like you didn't steal right. um like that's in a psalm mm. very often i encounter from people who aren't ready to face the ways that they've hurt other people yeah. they'll make it seem like you were the one who hurt them right for instance like i might bring up to a church that is continuing like that continues to be silenced i mean silent about what is happening to black and brown people, mm -hmm. not just in the U.S., but around the world, mm -hmm. um, and how, like, white people's lament will be extremely specific. Like, mm -hmm. for instance, like, Boko Haram, like, would happen, mm -hmm. but, like, people would only focus on, like, things that happen to white people in France. Um, so it's, like, this, this, like, selective lament isn't just happening within the u.s context it's mm -hmm. global mm -hmm. um and the ways that u.s americans respond to global crisis is also selective um right so yeah i mean this idea of lament like that's something that i think is like lament is pervasive throughout scripture mm -hmm. and yet within the white church like that's something that we don't really ever talk about or like we see lament as like being sad about something briefly whereas mm -hmm. you, you mentioned finding your own emotional experience within the canon like mm -hmm. how powerful to like to have this embodied spirituality that's so different from this kind of like heady rational yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's it's such that's that's such a different way of reading scripture than what I think a lot of us, and I don't want to universalize, but I think from what a lot of us were, were taught to read scripture, like and there's something really beautiful there of being able to find that and then especially find space for lament and longing and grief mm -hmm. within the text. Yeah, it's Yeah, it's one of those things where I feel like even like a command that like we are given um, by like Jesus or the prophets or even like Paul to like be able to like weep with those who weep mm -hmm. and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Mm -hmm. um, like I seldom see the white church weep 
with the black church, mm. like collectively. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I can already hear people being like, I, I do, but it's like totally. collectively, like um, the white church doesn't weep with those who weep. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't rejoice with those who rejoice. Like I remember even one time I was at this event, there was a musical liturgy where we had to engage in lament. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it was just awkward seeing like the white people just kind of like pretending to be sad and like doing like the like fake boohoo tears. And it just kind of felt like a mockery. Um, I'm like, like it takes, I feel like there has to be some kind of lament is, I feel like lament is like a process or like it's, it's kind of like something that you enter in. Mm. It's not something that you, you are just like, oh, like, people are sad and like I'm uncomfortable that people are sad um and I'm gonna and it's like I don't need you to like hug me right now or like I don't need you to put like your hands on me and try to make me happy right now um like I need I need to be sad so that way I can experience joy again if I'm always numbing how I feel I can't experience other feelings um and that was that was something that I was reminded of when I was doing mission year, um, just one of my teammates reminded me that like, it was okay for me to experience my sadness and to not ex- suppress it in my anger because I, I can't experience joy either if I'm, if I'm constantly suppressing all of my emotions. Right. And, and, and if I'm suppressing my sadness, then I'm not being in tune with myself. I'm not. I'm not aware of like what's what's happening in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm just kind of like running through life, kind of like a blind run in a video game. Right. Um, whereas like when I'm engaging with my emotions, like whether it's through scripture or listening to people or like mm-hmm. listening to myself, I feel like I'm more aware of what's happening around me mm-hmm. and how like I can help myself and how I can be helpful to others. And then I'm also, and then I also open myself up to being able to receive happiness or joy. Right. I just feel like this constant pursuit, pursuit for like joy and happiness and like comfort Mm -hmm. can be toxic. I mean, it's not wrong to be happy or to experience joy um, Mm -hmm. or to want to be comforted. Like those are important things. Right. But there are so many people who aren't being comforted at all Mm. and who are experiencing lament like and sadness and all these deeply painful emotions by themselves Mm -hmm. and so it's if we're supposed to be like jesus we're supposed to be with people and when when you're constantly not allowing yourself to to enter the pain of other people then you're not being with them. Right. It's like don't throw away, don't throw around the word compassion if you're not actually going to enter into the pain of other people. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. That doesn't mean you have to take it on either. But <laughs> right, right. But it's like, but I mean, you know that kind of that experience of being in pain and then having someone come up to you and kind of give you a hug or pat you on the shoulder and like that kind of it's going to be okay. And I think that like that highlights that. I think uncomfortability that a lot of people who've grown up in that kind of white American church context, like 
we're taught to kind of automatically jump to the hope or jump to Mm -hmm. the joy or like we, one of my professors in seminary says we always skip, we always skip Saturday in the resurrection story. Like we always jump to Sunday. Jesus is risen. Everything is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Where the reality of life is, is like we have that, that Saturday of where nothing is okay. And we have to sit in those spaces in order to be truly whole and healthy and we can't just skip over that yeah it kind of makes me want to like side eye when people do like put put things that are supposed to take us into that space Mm -hmm. of like being in touch with like the sadness and grief um and anger of other people Mm -hmm. but like we're not actually like doing it Mm -hmm. like like i i've been in spaces where people would play like the man of sorrows song Right. Like very often, but then I'm side eyeing them because I'm just like, but like when people in your congregation are experiencing grief, like the only kind of grief you're willing to like hold sometimes are like predictable griefs, like when a parent dies. And even sometimes mm-hmm. you, like people aren't even able to do that. It's like, right. they're like, oh wait, you're still grieving that your parent died. Like yeah. you should get over that. Mm-hmm. Like, but I'm like, you know, like you're being as awful as Job's friends. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like don't be Job's friends right now. Like, yeah. actually, like be be with your friend. Like, grief takes a long time. Mm-hmm. Grief doesn't go away. And like the fact that you're grieving something means that you care. Like, if you still haven't stopped grieving your your grandmother who passed away, like that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, or like the fact that like a lot of black and brown people, like we're still grieving people who have been lost Mm -hmm. to state violence Mm -hmm. like it's okay for us to keep grieving that um Mm -hmm. because it matters to us right i don't know i feel like we don't often think about what our emotions mean and i think that that's why black girl psalms um or just even any kind of any kind of engagement with like scripture that pays attention to like the emotions in the scripture like i think is important yeah because i think like the flip side of of that is when when we have this culture of not paying attention to our emotions then those of us who are feeling our emotions or are deeply angry or deeply sad or whatever the breadth of those those emotions are there's a demonization then of those emotions and of Mm -hmm. people who are sitting in those spaces It, it turns into this kind of like societal erasure of those feelings and and that makes for a very unhealthy i mean it makes for very unhealthy people like as you said like when we ignore those emotions we numb those emotions it also makes for a very unhealthy culture yeah it's dangerous too because i know that i'm becoming more and more aware of the ways that white people's unexamined feelings are hurting people of color Mm -hmm. um if white people aren't able to admit to themselves that they feel afraid, um, then people of color are paying the price for that. Um, I'm thinking about a lot of the people who are doing power grabs. Um, for instance, I'm, I'm thinking more specifically about the ways that white church men will try to stay relevant, um, especially as people of color are starting to assert themselves more and more in spaces that were previously kind of just a sea of white 
white faces. Right. Um, and a lot of times that will look like white men saying really awful things about people of color mm-hmm. um, and our, the things that we do or our scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about what happened at Duke. I can't say that I know how um, the professor who called anti-racism training as anti-intellectual is feeling. Right. Um, but I don't know, like a part of me wonders if there's fear mm. like at play or, or even just in my personal experience with like also being called anti-intellectual, right. which I suspect is like the favorite word of like white men who are experiencing some kind of crisis in like authority. Um, totally. Is, is just um, like fear. Like I remember just like, like I'm very, like I'm hypersensitive. And so like I, I can feel other people's, mm. um, I can sense other people's energies. I'm not like in like a, like a weird way or anything, but it's like, like I notice their body language. Mm -hmm. Um, and it can be a good thing or a bad thing because it can also add to my anxiety. Um, but like when I was being basically harassed by one of my teachers, um, I experienced just viewing his body language, um, and how like, he was basically on his toes, like the whole time, like just bouncing on his toes, um, just shaking, like, but he was like rude and mean to me and hostile, um, and eventually called me an anti-intellectual. And so, and, and I also just had a sense that like, he wasn't actually trying to listen to me. Um, it was just gaslighting me the whole time. Yeah. And so, I don't know, it just, I, I feel like there may have been a lot of fear of like oh like Rachel's trying to challenge my the program or like my scholarship right. you know right. um or Rachel was naming to me some of the ways that my scholarship has excluded people mm-hmm. um or have rendered that certain people don't engage concepts like peace and conflict and nonviolence like in a way that is quote-unquote pure right <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I I felt like perhaps like if he had examined more of those emotions before the three times that he had met with me, that maybe it wouldn't have escalated to that point. Mm-hmm. And that maybe like like maybe experiencing um, some kind of change in the curriculum or um, in how the program operated wouldn't have seemed so scary mm-hmm. um, if he had processed those emotions and why he was he was experiencing them and had been, had done something to like try to build trust with people in his department, Mm -hmm. um, particularly his students Mm -hmm. who are different from him, but the patriarchy doesn't do that. So (laughs) this is true. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, so I'm thinking about, and, and maybe to close, this might be, might be something really good to close with. Like you, you write a lot about like this idea of agency of, of finding agency within uh, ourselves within the way we do theology, within the way we respond to people. Uh, and you, you write, agency is being able to do something because I want to. I feel like I am recognizing my own personal sense of agency when I choose to act in a way that feels meaningful to me, in a way that isn't reactive, 
In contrast, oppressive social and political structures may limit the agency of an individual. And I'm, I'm curious if you could maybe talk about that a little bit. Like, how is this idea of agency helping you reclaim your space? Yeah, being able to think about agency has been really meaningful to me just because I feel, especially like as someone who experiences oppression as like a woman, um, as someone who is also queer and who is also black um there are a lot of ways in which like society tries to limit my actions or interpret my actions um with agent like in in being able to examine what kind of agency i have in a situation i'm able to make decisions that i feel good about um or like I, I'm able to make decisions where I don't feel like I'm just doing what is expected of me. Right. Or I'm able to take a step back and like reflect on like how I can make a situation that is really like terrible and shitty mm. into one that I can be creative about, like mm. be creative in how I move forward mm. um, and like have a sense of power and dignity. Because right. um, like, I guess one example I feel like my agency can be at times limited um, is when I am given narratives by mainstream social justice, mainstream social justice blogs or media that isn't like kind of just explain like why like a queer black person might do something um, or like why they might get angry at a white person for doing something. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I know that white people are going to be reading those resources as well, right. especially white people who want to come alongside people as allies. Mm -hmm. But there can be moments where white people will kind of like prescribe what I should do mm -hmm. or how I should be feeling. Mm -hmm. um, also known as white splaining mm -hmm. to um, when people do that, that robs me of my agency of being able to respond the way that I want to respond. Right. Um there are times where I might have a white person like ask me a question that is very annoying um, and very uncreative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like another white person might be like, oh, like you don't have to talk to that person. Mm. Um, and it's like, you know, I, I don't. Um, but like maybe this person who asked me or said something that annoyed me is somewhat something that I love, like someone that I love. Mm. Um, and I want to respond to this person. Mm -hmm. And so like, even, even though it can be a good thing to have kind of these guidelines in like social justice media, they shouldn't be taken as gospel. Right. Because I feel in, in a way that robs people of their agency mm -hmm. and their freedom to act as they want. Mm -hmm. And it, it puts us into roles. Mm -hmm. And I've been hurt by white people who are trying to play their role. There's no compassion in there. There's no relationship in that. Right. Um, and so, like, I feel when I'm in this mode of, like, reactivity, I'm I'm not allowed to be authentic mm -hmm. or I'm not allowed to be, like, received as authentic mm -hmm. um, either. And there's no relationship happening. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard for me sometimes to talk about relationship just because I feel like the church can be like very anti-structural mm. um, and super into relationship and think that like the answer to racism is to just build relationships with a bunch of token 
like people of color. Right. Um, um, and not to examine their whiteness um, and 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 the structures of whiteness mm-hmm. that preserve like that like preserve white supremacy. Um, and to be able to betray those structures, mm. um, people, the church tends to be very relational and very anti-structural. Right. Like when when it is being relational. <laughs> right. Right. Um, um, so it can be hard for me sometimes to say that as like a Christian to U.S. Christians, um, white Christians specifically, because of the anti-structuralism of white Christians. Mm. Because I don't want them to hear that, like, that, like, oh yeah, like racism will just go away if you build a relationship with me. Right. Um, that's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's, I think it's one of those things where relationship is one of those things where it, it that is really important mm-hmm. um, in the battle against racism, mm-hmm. but in white supremacy, mm-hmm. we're able to process things like our emotions um, and why we're angry or why we're scared um, or why we don't want to examine the structures um, when we are in relationship with people. Um, I choose to be in relationship with white people at times, even though I have been hurt a lot and I don't have to be um, because of the trauma that happens um, with those relationships. But I choose to be because I think that there are ways that I can heal myself and also heal people, not like in like a magical negress kind of way, right. but like like just kind of like in an authentic way. And that's just something that like we're, we'll, we'll just, we just have to experience because like it doesn't really make a lot of sense if I just talk about it. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like such and i know like i've used i've used this word a lot but like it sounds like such an embodied experience to take back the power that's being taken from you like the the agency of like no like i i have the power to make a choice no matter what you're trying to put on me Mm -hmm. yeah like how i i know some people who have been able to go into places that have been extremely harmful for them because with a sense of power and purpose mm-hmm. because they have they have created a space for them to explore alternatives of like why like I have been hurt in this way and this place has space has been a dangerous space for me mm-hmm. but like how can I think about what I'm doing in the space mm-hmm. or like how can I engage in this space in a way that feels empowering to me mm-hmm. um and sometimes that's not possible. Right. But I and I think that and I think that as white people and other people with different privileges, because um, I mean this is a queer podcast, so we're also thinking about like straight and cis cisgendered people. Right. Like how can we create spaces where people are less likely to be reactive? Mm-hmm. Um, like how how can we make spaces where people are able to be more creative mm. with how they respond to their life? Um, so I think even with agency, like, you know, I can, I can try to tap into all this agency, um, that like I can come up with, um, but that also doesn't take responsibility away from people such as straight people who need to stop harming me or stop, you know, 
um, erasing me um, or, or white people mm-hmm. who don't want me to be in leadership. Mm-hmm. Like they still have, they still have a responsibility. And, and just because I'm trying to recognize my agency in situations and how I can move forward, that doesn't mean that that person has to be becomes less responsible. Right. Because um, that's that's a cop out. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. Ah. Well, thank you so much for joining. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for having me. Of course. Rachel writes and blogs over at her website, The Generous Pine. That's thegenerouspine.wordpress.com. You can support her work through her Patreon, patreon.com slash Rachel Virginia. And she's on Twitter at Rachel underscore Virginia. I'd really encourage you to go check out her work, read her writing. It is incredible and definitely consider supporting her on a monthly basis. Queerology is on Twitter at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. If you're enjoying Queerology, I'd love it if you could go leave a review on iTunes. It's how they pick featured podcasts. Uh, you can just head to iTunes and do that, or visit MatthiasRoberts.com slash review. As always, I'd love your thoughts, comments, anything you have to say. Uh, tweet me or send me a note through my website. I'll get back to you. And until next week, bye! Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.